Start of Dracula. Welcome to Craftlet, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from the shores of the Potomac in Virginia, the Old Dominion. Episode 223, Stoked. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by Knit Circus, the online magazine featuring three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can find out more by visiting www.knitcircus.com. Also, Tea Times Creations. You can find vintage china tea stands, fittings, and more at teatimescreations.com at etsy.com or follow the link in the show notes and cool for cats the new novel by andrew c ordover available at amazon and you can follow links to that via the craftlet show notes at craftlet.com hi it's been a little while i've been kind of busy i'm really glad i took the extra time to do dracula because dracula turns out to have way more research base to it than a lot of the books we've done. Which is, you know, not entirely all that surprising, I suppose, because, well, the book is kind of fraught, as you might expect. And that leads me to remind you that for the duration of our journey through Dracula, you should... I hate saying the word should. I'm not going to say that. It would behoove you... (laughs) that's no better, to consider whether you should be listening to this with children around. Uh, I know plenty of people who who listen and use the podcast for homeschooling and, and things like that. Be cautious with the ages of your listeners, because I will have to deal with adult subject matter. I will continue to do it in a respectful and clean manner, but uh, it's a book for grown-ups. It's not so much a book for the Twilight crowd, if you know what I mean. At least not when you actually start looking at some of the symbology and iconography and stuff like that that happens in Dracula. And let me tell you, I have listened to this book now four times, (laughs) completely. It's really good. And Bram Stoker, or Abraham Stoker, as he was named when he was born in Ireland... See, I'm just kind of casually tossing that stuff out to you. Um, he, he's really quite a good writer. And he wrote a lot of short stories, kind of like Edgar Allan Poe stories. I didn't know that about him. And so I read one of them, and holy cow, is that sucker creepy. Yowza. But more, more on that later. I've been saving up a whole bunch of stuff to tell you about because lots and lots of stuff kept coming in. So... Just a few things before we get to the good stuff. And if you are new to the podcast and joining us as we start Dracula, this is what form the podcast takes. Usually there's crafty, kind of whatever, I'm onto stuff, trying to share useful and interesting information with you. And then I get into talking about the book, and then I play the audio of the next chapter or chapters, if I can fit more than one in. And uh, and that's how we make our way through these novels. And it's a lot of fun. And speaking of a lot of fun, hello, New York. 
I had the best time. I got to see friends of mine from Kaplan, Marna and Liz, who I haven't seen in forever. It was great. And they haven't aged at all, which is really kind of scary and makes me start to think about Dorian Gray. But it was fabulous to see them. I got to see my sister and my brother-in-law. I got to see friends. I got to see Deb. I got to, it was awesome. And Aaron Ziegler did a great job with his partner, Kim, who uh, presented Taming of the Shrew kind of variations on. And that worked really well. And I think people had a really good time conversating. <laughs> I'll just make up a word about the, the texts. I know in the afternoon, people kind of came and showed up for different sets of activities. We had music in the evening, we had poetry in the afternoon, and we had Aaron doing Shakespeare in the morning. And uh, the people who were there for the poetry section, uh, my pal Dave, who went to UCLA with me, who has a beautiful voice, he came and read uh, sea poetry. And he, uh, he just did lovely work. He's really, really good with poetry. And so it was so nice because it wasn't just he read and then we all just kind of talked around him. I mean, he really was part of the conversation. And it's, uh, it's very interesting because one of the things that he came to was that Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, probably owing to the fact that Coleridge was in some alternate state of reality most of the time, that, that Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner really is not written to be read out loud. That the rhythms are odd and unnatural, unlike Shakespeare, where the rhythms are very natural, so natural that you often can't tell that you're listening to verse. Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner really forces you to do some weird things with rhyme and with rhythm that are, are not naturally tenable for out loud speaking. And it was interesting because I have a much better time reading that poem on the page than I do listening to it out loud. And I think it's the only time that's ever happened to me with the text. I really enjoy listening to books, obviously. But yeah, so that was kind of fun. And I hope, I really do hope it's a show we can take on the road because I know everywhere I could possibly go, there are actors who would be happy to spend a day just having people listen to them and talk to them about what they're working on and reading. And, um, and it's really nice to be able to just sit and knit and have, it's not, it's not a stitch and bitch group, you know, it's, there's a focus to it, there's a text, there's something to talk about, and everybody has such interesting opinions. And of course, because craftlet people are just better. There's no cantankerous, like, well, that's not what it means. You know, everybody's really kind of adding to the general consensus, and it was wonderful. So if you couldn't make it to the one in New York, I will be creating some kind of a, a plan or a plot or a order of ceremonies kind of thing that I'll put up on the Craftlet website at craftlet.com. And you can take that to your local yarn stores and we'll see if we can work something out where we could do that for part of a day or for a whole day. And I could teach classes um, on another day. And that way the local yarn store would get, you know, something out of getting us there and maybe bring a bunch of people into their store who wouldn't normally come because there were husbands and spouses and uh, I did have a couple of people who were just sketching and drawing while they were listening and that was really cool too so you know you don't have to knit my sister was crocheting she doesn't she won't knit she will never knit which is fine I still love her so other things to let you know about 
The What Would Madame Defarge Knits videos are on YouTube and are linked to from the www.mdfk.com site. And now my nasty little secret is out and I don't record this all in one day because I know you can hear the difference in my voice. Uh, asthma, asthma and allergies and uh, this is what happens. I thought it was strep throat. It was so bad, but I'm, I'm okay. I just sound like Brenda Vaccaro. But I also wanted to announce that the musician who is playing background music in all three of the Defarge videos for sections one, two, and three of the What Would Madame Defarge Knit book, his name is Mario Ajero. And not only does he play piano for the first two, he plays harpsichord for the last one. And his playing is just lovely. So I wanted to give him a shout out because he's really good. And the music was free. And I love him. I also wanted to announce a new podcast started by... Amy Foster, one of our longtime listeners, who you may recall as the writer, the author, the authoress of When Autumn Leaves, which uh, I read and we talked about, oh, many moons ago. Um, and uh, she's been cooking up some fun along with children. She's been cooking up a podcast. Are you drawn to country states and masterpiece theater? And yet also have a love for tattoos, gossip, and overpriced denim? Do you love to knit, sew, or crochet? But still like to go out and tear it up once in a while? Do you feel like super interesting in a really dorky way? Don't worry if no one gets you. We do. You're invited to our place, The Heatley Clef. A weekly podcast where you'll feel right at home. So yay, Amy, I'm always excited when you guys start new podcasts, and I am always happy to play promos, so don't ever hesitate. If you start a podcast or, uh, or some new venture and you want it announced, please let me know. Uh, let's see. Oh, my husband has released a book. It is called Cool for Cats. It is a murder mystery. It is for grown-ups, just like Dracula. There are bad words in it. Like right away, I think on the first page. So I'm just letting you know, you know, don't toss it at your 13 year old. Tanya, who you may know from Cast On as the partner of Brenda Dane, she sent me an email asking me to share something with you. And of course, Tanya is fabulous. And therefore, I oblige. Because who can say no to a fabulous Welsh woman is what I'm saying. So Tanya got something called a Benbow tripod. I had not heard of these. They are massive and massively cool. And uh, the whole purpose of getting this was to be able to do kind of the over-the-shoulder shots, the kind of things that you really need to have to be able to do the here, watch my hands as I complete some intricate task on the desk kind of thing, or here, watch as I knit this very complicated thing. I have tried doing this myself, and I can attest to the fact that without the proper equipment, this is incredibly difficult to pull off. Well, Tanya and Brenda made a lovely little video. You probably heard about Brenda Dane's um, Knitter's Manifesto and the CD that came out with it. And so this video is showing how to make the sound diary for 
the Knitter's Manifesto. And it's a really cool folding job. It is uh, very much like the triple quick books that I talked about a while ago, or um, some of the pocket mods that you'll find. Those There's Moleskine pocket mods, and then there's other getting things done pocket mods that are out there. It's a really, really cool way to make a book that has a cover and interior pages out of regular sheets of paper. Um, I guess it's A4 paper in the UK and uh, and eight and a half by 11 size paper here in the US. So take a look at that video. I link to it from the show notes. And I collected some really cool things from listeners. One is that uh, on Ravelry, Irish Clover, um, Susie's been to uh, where Bram Stoker was born and stuff. And so she has all sorts of pictures that she shared with me, and I'll be putting those up kind of as we go along. Um, I'm also trying to compile maps and photographs of locations for Dracula because the book is actually based in real locations, which I think is kind of cool. So there's that. Also on Ravelry, Cheeky Redhead, who's a longtime listener, she created her very own creepy playlist. So it's good songs that are creepy songs that are great to listen to while you're listening to something like Dracula. And I am going to put her list in the show notes. And then she was very much hoping that everybody else would also add creepy songs in the comments section of the show notes because, you know, it's hard to come up with an exhaustive list on your own. I think she's, I think she's actually done it, but take a look and see if there's a creepy song that you think of that isn't already on there and then add it so that we can all enjoy the creepiness together. I also wanted to let you know that Katie over at Yarn Love has been doing yeoman service. She's really been working her hands off. She's got some gorgeous new colorways up. And I didn't even tell her I was going to say any of this. Um, I've been drooling, really, over her last two emails. So if you haven't gone over to Yarn Love, oh, please do. It was really, really, really good. And on the shameless self-promotion side of things, the side that I really, really stink at, I need to hire somebody to do marketing or PR for me because I'm, I am so happy to tell you all sorts of cool things that other people are doing. And then I get totally weird about the stuff that I'm doing, at least stuff that includes money. It's a bad thing to do, really. But anyway, so Madame Defarge, parking along splendidly. We're selling lots of books. That's all great. We are starting our first knit along. Our first one is going to start this week with Chrissy Gardner doing the Wilhelmina Shawlette. And all of the instructions for that are on the What Would Madame Defarge Knit Ravelry group. So that's Ravelry. And then it's www, um, sorry, WWMDFK. What Would Madame Defarge I added the F in there because it looks funny. K. And that, all of the knit-alongs are going to happen on that group. It just makes it easier to contain everything in one place. And it's, it's especially easier for me because then I don't have to go tracking down a whole bunch of stuff. So knit-along for the Wilhelmina Chalette is starting there. And then a knit-along for the Van Tassel Mittens will be occurring in October. And I just listened to our old episode of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. And listen to Chip. You remember Chip? Oh, that's a good story. 
boy, if you haven't listened to that audio in a while, go back and pick those up. It's like 26, 27, and 28, I think, episodes. 26, 27, 20, I think so. Chip is a master. Uh, and on the shameless promotion side, please, 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 and this, you know, it's not just for me, it's for everyone. If you know anyone who has a small business and you can't afford to buy their stuff or anything like that, there is a very important way that you can support people who are starting out in businesses or running small businesses or, you know, doing anything that, um, that is smaller than a major corporation. The, the big corporations, I don't know if you've noticed what's been happening on Google, but it's very hard to find information that hasn't been paid for and it's very hard to find informative pages. I mean, you can still find Wikipedia, but it's very hard to find informative pages the way it was possible to do so just, I don't know, even a year ago, where I'm getting these kind of clearinghouse sites that are mostly ads and that aren't, in fact, providing the information that I wanted, but they've somehow figured out how to jury-rig the, the search engine they, they somehow have figured out code to put into their web pages that put them at the top of the ranking list. And you have to dig pages and pages and pages until you find what you're actually looking for. I am not happy with that. If anybody knows of a good search engine system that is using a different algorithm from Google, significantly different, different enough that you don't get the same results at all, I would be fascinated to give that a test run because it's really starting to get irksome. And this all comes down to this. If someone were to Google free literature podcast, Craftlet would never come up. Or, you know, not until pages and pages and pages later, which is frustrating, but uh, it goes along with the other stuff, books, patterns. If you have pattern writers on Ravelry who you like, favorite them. If, uh, if there's a particular pattern you like, tweet about it. If there's a particular book you like, go to Amazon and write a review. It's, it's the easiest way you can support the kinds of things that you want to support without having to spend money. Because honestly, who among us has money to burn right now, right? This is a crazy, crazy world. Anyway, so there's, there's the two cents on that. And along with that, um, that goes for podcasts too. Even if you can't donate, go on iTunes and write a positive review. Or write a blog post about the podcasts that you like the best. Trust me when I say that is as valuable, if not more valuable, than making a donation. Not that I'm saying anything's wrong with donations. Just letting you know there are other options, other ways to show your support. And speaking of donations, if you donate in the month of September or October 2011, have I got an incentive for you. Marcelle Botticelli, who has the coolest name ever, she has an Etsy store called Tea Times Creations, and she has done the coolest little, um, they're tiered china. Here, you know what? I am going to read you what she says. Repurposed, one-of-a-kind creations using vintage china. 
heirloom quality cake and tea stands, jewelry stands, and house accessories. We also offer you all you need to create your own stands yourself. Drill bits, instructions, metal fittings and handles, and vintage china. Drilling services, custom orders, and layaway are available. You have got to go look at her Etsy store. And if you donate to Craftlet during the month of September or October 2011, you will be put into the drawing for one of these. I have linked to her store. You have to go look at this stuff. And I have put a button on the show notes so you can actually see what it looks like. And it is so worth a look. She's just doing awesome stuff. So I'm very, very excited about this. It was so, so generous of her to donate this to the show. And I'm just excited because someone's going to get one and they're wonderful. So that was very, very cool. Oh, and along the same promotion line, Erin Ziegler contacted me because there is a podcast awards competition that's coming up. I have linked to it from the show notes. He has as well. He is putting, he, he's putting forward Chop Bard in the arts and culture category. And I am putting Craftlet forward in the people's choice category because, you know, Craftlet doesn't really fit anywhere. That's part of our Murray-ness, our special quality. Uh, please consider taking a few moments to follow the link and vote for for our podcasts. We really, what we're really hoping is that we both either do well or win in our categories because we're, you know, we're so on the same side of, of the struggle with, with literature and with um, what we spend our free time doing that we, I think we both feel like we complement each other really well. And having gotten a chance to meet Aaron and, uh, and Shannon, his producer, in person in New York and really, you know, spend a good chunk of time with them, I feel even more solid about really chatting up Chop Bard. What, what Aaron is doing is really, really good, important work. And uh, I know a lot of schools are using him uh, and uh, homeschoolers are using him the same way that they're using Craftlet. And it thrills both of us no end. So all of this information is in the show notes along with a whole bunch of links about Dracula. Dracula. Oh, here we go, Dracula. Dracula is awesome and complicated and grown up and so much misinformation is out there. I really had to do some digging to get to scholars who know what they're talking about because there are a lot of people in scholar clothing <laughs> who posited some questions which people then took as fact. It's kind of like the echo chamber of our media where Somebody said, oh, Al Gore said that he invented the internet, which isn't what he said, but it doesn't matter because that's a better story. And so people repeat that instead of going back to the source and seeing what he really said, which wasn't, he invented the internet. I invented the internet. No. Well, the same thing happened to Bram Stoker that happened to Al Gore. <laughs> maybe, we should, maybe we should make that a verb. Bram Stoker got Al Gore'd is what happened. Uh, Bram Stoker has never been to Transylvania, which we knew. 
but he did a lot of research. And Bram Stoker didn't know about Vlad the Impaler. Now, I know this is going to crush you, and it upset me too, and I had to kind of come to terms with that. But uh, there was a lot of scuttle when the Winona Ryder version of Dracula came out that uh, Vlad the Impaler, who was a real guy in the 1400s, and uh, fought mightily against the encroaching Turks. Uh, there was a lot of talk that that had been the beginning of the Dracula myth and that Bram Stoker just kind of drew on that. Well, sort of and sort of not. There was actually a family named Dracula. Really, seriously. And uh, again, many, many, many years ago, 1400s, 1500s, and they... Uh, they were they had been named that as a, a moniker um and and the the word actually relates to dragon and it was you know fierce fighting and the dragon crest and all of that kind of good stuff and he just really liked the name up until the point that he came across this in a library in Whitby England which is going to make more sense to you shortly um up until the the point that he came across this the name Dracula his his uh, main evil dude was named Count Vampire and I think we can all agree that Count Dracula sounds way better and he clearly thought it sounded way better because he immediately went back and crossed out Vampire everywhere in his manuscript and replaced it with Dracula and this is one of the the things that was interesting in digging through the the literature and the research is you can tell you can start to tell pretty quickly who has actually seen Bram Stoker's handwritten manuscripts and notes and who has been making educated guesses and it's you know it's Occam's razor all over again the the simplest answer is most likely the correct one the guy was writing fiction he's making stuff up and while it's nice to think that oh you know vlad the impaler is so bloody that must be where this came from there were stories of him drinking their blood there are stories about everybody in eastern europe drinking somebody's blood at some point whether it's jews or turks or ivan it everybody gets accused of that it's like the what is it in uh you guys can correct me. I'm going to get something wrong here. Uh, Norway, Finland, and Sweden, depending on which country you're in, you will hear them say that the other person sounds like they're talking with a potato in their throat. <laughs> it's, not everybody can sound like they have a potato in their throat. It has to start with someone. But it's that, it's that same thing. You know, everybody gets accused of, you know, kidnapping and eating Christian babies or... Uh, drinking somebody's blood or um, being a witch. You know, you've seen this kind of thing happen before. There's nothing different about the origins of this story. Some of it came from older stories, although Nosferatu does not mean vampire. In fact, the possible etymology on that one is so complicated that I just put it in the show notes rather than read it to you. Some other tidbits are the 15th century Dracula fought the Turks and his, his name Dracula means devil in Wallachian. This is interesting. If you're in the Carpathians, you've got uh, four distinct competing groups 
you talk about being balkanized, here it is. You've got the Magyars, the Saxons, the Wallachs, and the Selkies. And they came from Attila the Hun. So you've got some very, very distinct groups competing here. And then you also have lurking all around this this area the threat of a Turkish invasion. And this is very interesting. The Turks were incredibly powerful and very strong fighters. And the people up in this part of the world really did have to defend themselves um, heavily against the Turkish invasions. My husband, when he was in Slovakia, told me that the tower, one of the towers that had been built in 1100 to be a watchtower, to keep an eye on whether the Turks were coming or not, it's still there. And that people in his little village in Slovakia would still talk about the Turks like they had invaded yesterday. So when, when we hear things like, um, like Bram Stoker says that, uh, I think he has Jonathan Harker say that this, this area where the Carpathians are, where Transylvania is, this is uh, like the center the magnetic center of all superstition. It all gets sucked in there and it all stays there. There's some real reasons for that because there were, um, just like when Little Red Riding Hood was written, it was dangerous to go into the woods by yourself. So what do you do? You scare the bajuboos out of your kids to make sure that they don't do that. Well, it's kind of the same thing here. I mean, these superstitions and stuff grew up because there was scary stuff going on. And, and people participate in magical thinking all the time. Whether it's like, oh, you know, I got my car washed and that's why it rained, which is probably the most benign, to you did something wrong and therefore you now have cancer, which I think is probably the most malignant, of no pun intended, of, of those kinds of magical thinking moments. Um, everyone... Everyone does it, except for my father. My father will not go there. I'm not sure what that's about. Now, one of the reasons why I was really excited to get to do Dracula, finally, I've been thinking about it since we did Frankenstein, but I really did have to kind of gear up for it. And of course, I've got asthma now that we're back in the green country, and I thought, oh great, I'm going to sound as bad doing Dracula as I sounded doing Frankenstein. People are going to think I'm dying all the time. Um, one of the things that you need to keep in mind as you listen to the text is Bram Stoker started writing this in 1890 and he finished it in 1897. And because of that time, you will find in some ways this book to be ever so much creepier than Frankenstein because it is closer to us. And by that, I mean, you will hear things like Jonathan Harker talk about taking pictures with his Kodak. And people can telegram each other. And, I mean, there aren't cars on the street, but it's clearly a more industrialized world than the one that Frankenstein took place in, by a long shot. And in fact, many of the locations where kind of skanky things happen, or where Dracula... Uh, puts up shop. Many, many of these locations in the book, regardless of how they are now, they are those scary back alley dock 
areas that you would have seen in Oliver or Oliver Twist or, um, you know, where Jack the Ripper kind of stuff. And in fact, there is a location that they use in the book that was Jack the Ripper's hotspot. And um, I didn't realize that until I'd been researching. I thought that was really kind of cool. I mean, Bram Stoker knew what he was doing. That wasn't an accident. He did that on purpose because he had a lot of things were going on in the late Victorian era and the turn of the 20th century. There were, there, it was a a fearful time in some ways. I mean, clearly Victoria was getting to the end of her reign. Everybody knew that, but it was also um, the Oscar Wilde trials were going on, which was a big deal and had a lot of people riled up. Uh, There was um, a huge immigration debate going on in England. Um, You know, new people were coming in and they didn't look like us or that, you know, that kind of attitude. Um, And, you know, the same thing's happening in the the United States. Um, Of course, we, we wound up with, what was it, German, German immigrants and then Irish immigrants and then Eastern European immigrants and every new wave of immigration, the old wave would be normalized. They're okay now. And then the new wave of immigrants would be vilified. And so it's a, it's a situation like that where there's, there's constant movement and, and changing of populations and the country is having a hard time uh, assimilating and maintaining an identity in the middle of this influx. And so there's a lot of those kinds of fears and boy, will you pick up on that in Dracula. Um, you knowing that Bram Stoker was born in Ireland, you may ask yourself, was he Catholic? And the answer is no, he wasn't. But that's actually going to become really interesting as the book continues on. Um, his mom evidently was, was born in a, a village and grew up in a village where there had been a, or when she was alive, there was a horrible cholera epidemic and people were dropping dead right, left, and center. You can see why this is not a podcast for children anymore, right? So people are dropping dead right, left, and center. And Bram, as a child, is sickly, undiagnosed. Nobody has any idea what was going on. He grew into a very healthy, very kind of large, strapping man. But as a child, he was very, very weak and very sick. And his mother would entertain, I put that in quotation marks, entertain him by telling him horror stories. Do you want to know why your kid was sick? It's because you scared him to death and he couldn't leave the house. (gasps) I couldn't believe it. It, But clearly that's where these stories, these kind of Poe-like stories are coming from. You'll hear people talk about Dracula as being a gothic novel and it certainly draws on gothic imagery and archetypes and motifs and, and all of that kind of stuff. But it's really kind of late to be a quote-unquote gothic novel. But I think that's also why it's so interesting, because instead of it being infused with supernatural or ubernatural elements the way Frankenstein was, you know, where nature played such a huge part in the book, uh, Dracula is far more modern. And I think, I think because of that, far more creepy. Uh, Well, for lots of reasons, it's way more creepy. But I still, you know, I'm not going to quibble with anybody if they say it's a gothic novel. I think, I think it, I think it fits enough of the definition to uh, 
to be able to pull that one off. Okay, so a couple of words. It's been a while since I've needed to do this where there are terms that are being used uh, for nouns, for things that are archaic enough that I felt like I need to provide you with a picture of a few things. So, uh, well, and explain a couple of things. One, Transylvania at the time of this book was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which was enormous. I have a map for you, which I'm going to be putting into the show notes pretty frequently, that has been generously donated to us by Siri James, who is an author of a Dracula book. I'm linking to her book and to the audiobook version of her book. The, winner, the woman who read it won uh, an audio award, you know, the, for books on tape people. Anyway, um, this map comes, comes to us by the good graces of Avon, an imprint of HarperCollins, and it is really cool. So, Siri James, who wrote Dracula, My Love, uh, which you should take a look at which, you know, I haven't had any time to read yet, but wow, her reviews for this book are awesome. So if you know, if you're in the mood to read kind of a parallel story, this would be a good one to pick. So one of the things you'll be able to see on this map is just how enormous the Austro-Hungarian Empire is, but it explains something really important. It explains why people are talking German. And if you look at the book, why the spellings of place names are German. They are not Eastern European. They're not Slavic. They're German. And, um, and that's just because of the political reality of the time. Makes perfect sense. And Jonathan Harker being a nice, educated young man, he can speak German. At least enough to get him around. Probably more than my Spanish. Uh, so that's the deal with Transylvania. Yes, it is a real place. It, uh, it didn't change from the Austro-Hungarian Empire until after World War I, after the Treaty of Versailles. And now it's where Romania is, that area. You will hear references to traditional costumes. I've tried to find some, and I was able to find the Slovak uh, dress and hat that he mentions. And so there's a picture of that on the show notes for you as well. Because that one, it, it just seemed kind of archaic and weird that it would be described the way that it's described. And it, it does make sense when you see the, the traditional costume. Um, he will mention something called robber steak, R-O-B-B-E-R, not rubber, R-U-B-B-E-R. And um, it's a shish kebab, just, just so you know. Uh, and, and, and there's a really sweet moment where you will he hear Harker talk about wanting his hotel in Transylvania to look old-fashioned. And that's what I mean about, about this world that the Dracula story inhabits being kind of creepily close to ours. I mean, can you imagine, for us, it's very easy to imagine traveling somewhere like Romania or, or even England and staying in a, a hotel and you want it to look like something in a, a Jane Austen novel or you want it to look like a castle from Frankenstein or, or whatever. And you get there and it's, you know, cinder blocks and concrete and you're kind of disappointed. And, Here's Harker traveling in 1897, and he's saying the same thing we would. And that's just, you know, it brings it all together. We are not all that different. There are a few things that are different. Plumbing is probably pretty different. And antibiotics. Antibiotics are very different. But aside from that. Oh, one other thing I've provided you with a picture of. 
is a kalesh. It's a small carriage, and I have a picture on the show notes. Okay, so I am now going to play you the audio. This audio was pretty hard fought. Uh, the podcast would have been out a week earlier, but my Jonathan Harker dropped out the day I was recording. So massive apologies for how long it took for me to find a replacement Dr. Harker. I do have a replacement audio for Dr. Seward and for Van Helsing, just because I, the the people who did the readings on the LibriVox audio for those characters, it was challenging to listen to. So uh, I went and found other better people for you, and that included Jonathan Harker. We begin the story of Dracula with Jonathan Harker's journal. Bram Stoker's Dracula, read by John Scones. Chapter 1. Jonathan Harker's Journal. 3rd of May, B Streets. Left Munich at 8.35pm on the 1st of May, arriving at Vienna on the next morning. Should have arrived at 6.46, but train was an hour late. Budapest seems a wonderful place, from the glimpse which I got of it from the train and the little I could walk through the streets. I feared to go very far from the station as we had arrived late and would start as near the correct time as possible. The impression I had was that we were leaving the west and entering the east, the most western of splendid bridges over the Danube, which is here of noble width and depth, took us amongst the traditions of Turkish rule. We left in pretty good time and came after nightfall to Klausenberg. Here I stopped for the night at the Hotel Royale. I had for dinner, or rather supper, a chicken done up some way with red pepper, which was very good but thirsty. Memo. Get recipe for Mina. I asked the waiter, and he said it was called a paprika hendel, and that, as it was a national dish, I should be able to get it anywhere along the Carpathians. I found my smattering of German very useful here. Indeed, I don't know how I should be able to get on without it. Having some time at my disposal when in London, I had visited the British Museum, and made search among the books and maps in the library regarding Transylvania. It had struck me that some foreknowledge of the country could hardly fail to have some importance in dealing with the noble of that country. I find that the district he named is in the extreme east of the country, just on the borders of three states, Transylvania, Moldavia and Bukovina, in the midst of the Carpathian Mountains, one of the wildest and least known portions of Europe. I was not able to light on any map or work giving the exact locality of the Castle Dracula, as there are no maps of this country as yet to compare with our own Ordnance Survey maps, but I found that Bistritz, the post town named by Count Dracula, is a fairly well-known place. I shall enter here some of my notes, as they may refresh my memory when I talk over my travels with Mina. In the population of Transylvania there are four distinct nationalities, Saxons in the south, and mixed with them the Wallachs, who are the descendants of the Dacians, Magyars in the west, and Zelkelis in the east and north. I am going among the latter, who claim to be descended from Attila and the Huns. This may be so, for when the Magyars conquered the country in the 11th century, they found the Huns settled in it. I read that every known superstition in the world is gathered into the horseshoe of the Carpathians, as if it were the centre of some sort of imaginative whirlpool. If so, my stay may be very interesting. Memo, I must ask the Count all about them. I did not sleep well, though my bed was comfortable enough, for I had all sorts of queer dreams. There was a dog howling all night under my window, which may have had something to do with it, or it may have been the paprika, for I had to drink up all the water in my carafe and was still thirsty. 
Towards morning I slept and was wakened by the continuous knocking at my door, so I guess I must have been sleeping soundly then. I had for breakfast more paprika, and a sort of porridge of maize flour which they called mamaliga, and an eggplant stuffed with forcemeat, a very excellent dish which they called impletata. Memo, get recipe for this also. I had to hurry breakfast, for the train started a little before eight, or rather it ought to have done so, for after rushing to the station at 7.30 I had to sit in the carriage for more than an hour before we began to move. It seems to me that the further east you go, the more unpunctual are the trains. What ought they to be in China? All day long we seemed to dawdle through a country which was full of beauty of every kind. Sometimes we saw little towns or castles on the top of steep hills such as we see in old missiles. Sometimes we ran by rivers and streams which seemed from the wide stony margin on either side to be subject to great floods. It takes a lot of water and running strong to sweep the outside edge of a river clear. At every station there were groups of people, sometimes crowds and in all sorts of attire. Some of them were just like the peasants at home or those I saw coming through France and Germany, with short jackets and round hats and homemade trousers, but others were very picturesque. The women looked pretty, except when you got near them, but they were very clumsy about the waist. They had all full white sleeves of some kind or other, and most of them had big belts with a lot of strips of something fluttering from them like the dresses in a ballet, but of course petticoats under them. The strangest figures we saw were the Slovaks, who are more barbarian than the rest, with their great big cowboy hats, great baggy dirty white trousers, white linen shirts and enormous heavy leather belts, nearly a foot wide, all studded over with brass nails. They wore high boots with their trousers tucked into them, and had long black hair and heavy black moustaches. They are very picturesque, but do not look prepossessing. On the stage they would be set down at once as some old oriental band of brigands. They are, however, I am told, very harmless and rather wanting in natural self-assertion. It was on the dark side of twilight when we got to B Street, which is a very interesting old place. Being practically on the frontier, for the Borgo Pass leads from it into Bukovina, it has had a very stormy existence and certainly shows marks of it. Fifty years ago a series of great fires took place, which made terrible havoc on five separate occasions. At the very beginning of the 17th century it underwent a siege of three weeks and lost 13,000 people, the casualties of a war proper being assisted by famine and disease. Count Dracula had directed me to go to the Golden Krona Hotel, which I found, to my great delight, to be thoroughly old-fashioned for of course I wanted to see all I could of the ways of the country. I was evidently expected, for when I got near the door I faced a cheery-looking elderly woman in the usual peasant dress, white undergarments with a long double apron, front and back of coloured stuff fitting almost too tight for modesty. When I came close she bowed and said, The hair Englishman? Yes, I said. Jonathan Harker. She smiled and gave some message to an elderly man in white shirt sleeves who had followed her to the door. He went, but immediately returned with the letter. My friend, welcome to the Carpathians. I am anxiously expecting you. Sleep well tonight. At three tomorrow the diligence will start for Bukovina. A place on it is kept for you. At the Borgo Pass my carriage will await you and will bring you to me. I trust that your journey from London has been a happy one, and that you will enjoy your stay in my beautiful land. Your friend... Dracula.
4th of May. I found that my landlord had got a letter from the Count, directing him to secure the best place on the coach for me, but on making inquiries as to details he seemed somewhat reticent, and pretended that he could not understand my German. This could not be true, because up to then he had understood it perfectly. At least, he answered my questions exactly as if he did. He and his lady-wife, the old lady who received me, looked at each other in a frightened sort of way. He mumbled out that the money had been sent in a letter, and that was all he knew. When I asked him if he knew Count Dracula, and could tell me anything of his castle, both he and his wife crossed themselves and, saying that they knew nothing at all, simply refused to speak further. It was so near the time of starting that I had no time to ask anyone else, for it was all very mysterious and not by any means comforting. Just before I was leaving, the old lady came up to my room and said in a very hysterical way, Must you go? Oh, young Herr, must you go? She was in such an excited state that she seemed to have lost her grip of what German she knew, and mixed it all up with some other language which I did not know at all. I was just able to follow her by asking many questions. When I told her that I must go at once, and that I was engaged on important business, she asked again, Do you know what day it is? I answered that it was the 4th of May. She shook her head as she said again, Oh, yes, I know that, I know that, but do you know what day it is? On my saying that I did not understand, she went on. It is the eve of St. George's Day. Do you not know that tonight, when the clock strikes midnight, all the evil things in the world will have full sway? Do you know where you are going and what you are going to? She was in such evident distress that I tried to comfort her, but without effect. Finally, she went down on her knees and implored me not to go at least to wait a day or two before starting. It was all very ridiculous, but I did not feel comfortable. However, there was business to be done, and I could allow nothing to interfere with it. I therefore tried to raise her up, and said, as gravely as I could, that I thanked her, but my duty was imperative, and that I must go. She then rose and dried her eyes, and taking a crucifix from her neck, offered it to me. I did not know what to do, for, as an English churchman, I have been taught to regard such things as in some measure idolatrous, and yet it seemed so ingracious to refuse an old lady meaning so well and in such state of mind. She saw, I suppose, the doubt in my face, for she put the rosary around my neck and said, For your mother's sake, and went out of the room. I am writing up this part of the diary whilst I am waiting for the coach, which is, of course, late, and the crucifix is still around my neck. Whether it is the old lady's fear, I do not know, but I am not feeling nearly as easy in my mind as usual. If this book should ever reach Mina before I do, let it bring my goodbye. Here comes the coach! 5th of May, the castle. The grey of the morning has passed, and the sun is high over the distant horizon, which seems jagged, whether with trees or hills I know not, for it is so far off that big things and little are mixed. I am not sleepy, and, as I am not to be called till I awake, naturally I write till sleep comes. There are many odd things to put down, and lest who reads them may fancy that I dined too well before I left Beatstreet's, let me put down my dinner exactly. I dined on what they call robber steak, bits of bacon, onion and beef, seasoned with red pepper and strung on sticks and roasted over the fire, in the simple style of the London cat's meat. The wine was golden medias, which produces a queer sting on the tongue, which is, however, not disagreeable. I had only a couple of glasses of this and nothing else. When I got on the coach, the driver had not taken his seat, and I saw him talking with the landlady. 
They were evidently talking of me, for every now and then they looked at me, and some of the people who were sitting on the bench outside the door, which they call by a name meaning word-bearer, came and listened, and then looked at me, most of them pityingly. I could hear a lot of words often repeated, queer words, for there were many nationalities in the crowd. So I quietly got my polyglot dictionary from my bag and looked them out. I must say they were not cheering to me, for among them were Ordog, Satan, Pokol, Hell, Stragoika, Witch, Rulok and Vukoslak, both of which mean the same thing, one being Slovak and the other Serbian for something that is either werewolf or vampire. Memo, I must ask the Count about these superstitions. When we started, the crowd round the inn door, which had by this time swelled to a considerable size, all made the sign of the cross and pointed two fingers towards me. With some difficulty, I got a fellow passenger to tell me what they meant. He would not answer at first, but on learning that I was English, he explained that it was a charm or guard against the evil eye. This was not very pleasant for me, just starting for an unknown place to meet an unknown man. But everyone seemed so kind-hearted, and so sorrowful, and so sympathetic that I could not but be touched. I shall never forget the last glimpse which I had of the inn-yard and its crowd of picturesque figures, all crossing themselves as they stood round the wide archway, with its background of rich foliage of oleander and orange leaves in green tubs clustered in the centre of the yard. Then our driver, whose wide linen drawers covered the whole front of the box-seat, Gotza they call them, cracked his big whip over his four small horses, which ran abreast, and we set off on our journey. I soon lost sight and recollection of ghostly fears in the beauty of the scene as we drove along, although had I known the language, or rather languages, of which my fellow passengers were speaking, I might not have been able to throw them off so easily. Before us lay a grain-sloping land full of forests and woods, with here and there steep hills, crowned with clumps of trees or with farmhouses, the blank gable end to the road. There was everywhere a bewildering mass of fruit blossom, apple, plum, pear, cherry, and as we drove by I could see the green grass under the trees spangled with the fallen petals. In and out amongst these green hills of what they call here the Middle Land ran the road, losing itself as it swept round the grassy curve, or was shut out by the straggling ends of pine woods, which here and there ran down the hillsides like tongues of flame. The road was rugged, but we seemed to fly over it with a feverish haste. I could not understand then what the haste meant, but the driver was evidently bent on losing no time in reaching Borgo Prund. I was told that this road is in summertime excellent, but that it had not yet been put in order after the winter snows. In this respect it is different from the general run of roads in the Carpathians, for it is such an old tradition that they are not to be kept in too good order. Of old the hospodars would not repair them, lest the Turks should think that they were preparing to bring in foreign troops, and so hasten the war which was always really at loading point. Beyond the green swelling hills of the middle land rose mighty slopes of forest up to the lofty steeps of the Carpathians themselves. Right and left of us they towered, with the afternoon sun falling full upon them and bringing out all the glorious colours of this beautiful range, deep blue and purple in the shadows of the peaks green and brown where grass and rock mingled, and an endless perspective of jagged rock and pointed crags, till those were themselves lost in the distance where the snowy peaks rose grandly. 
Here and there seemed mighty rifts in the mountains, through which, as the sun began to sink, we saw now and again the white gleam of falling water. One of my companions touched my arm as we swept round the base of a hill and opened up the lofty, snow-covered peak of a mountain, which seemed, as we wound on our serpentine way, to be right before us. Look! It's in Zach, God's seat! And he crossed himself reverently. As we wound on our endless way and the sun sank lower and lower behind us, the shadows of the evening began to creep round us. This was emphasized by the fact that the snowy mountain top still held the sunset and seemed to glow out with a delicate, cool pink. Here and there we passed Czechs and Slovaks, all in picturesque attire, but I noticed that the goiter was painfully prevalent. By the roadside there were many crosses, and as we swept by, my companions all crossed themselves. Here and there was a peasant man or woman kneeling before a shrine, who did not even turn round as we approached, but seemed in the self-surrender of devotion to have neither ears nor eyes for the outer world. There were many things new to me. For instance, hayricks in the trees, and here and there very beautiful masses of weeping birch, their white stems shining like silver through the delicate greens of the leaves. Now and then we passed a litre wagon, an ordinary peasant's cart with its long snake-like vertebra, calculated to suit the inequalities of the road. On this were sure to be seated quite a group of homecoming peasants, the Czechs with their white and the Slovaks with their coloured sheepskins, the latter carrying lance fashion with their long staves, with axe at end. As the evening fell it began to get very cold, and the glowing twilight seemed to merge into one dark mistiness the gloom of the trees, oak, birch and pine, though in the valleys which ran deep between the spurs of the hills, as we ascended through the pass, the dark firs stood out here and there against the background of late-lying snow. Sometimes, as the road was cut through the pine woods that seemed in the darkness to be closing down upon us, great masses of greyness, which here and there bestrewed the trees, produced a particularly weird and solemn effect, which carried on the thoughts and grim fancies engendered earlier in the evening, when the falling sunset threw into strange relief the ghost-like clouds which among the Carpathians seemed to wind ceaselessly through the valleys. Sometimes the hills were so steep that, despite our driver's haste, the horses could only go slowly. I wished to get down and walk up them, as we do at home, but the driver would not hear of it. No, no, he said, you must not walk here, the dogs are too fierce. And then he added, with what he evidently meant for grim pleasantry, for he looked around to catch the approving smile of the rest, and you may have enough of such matters before you go to sleep. The only stop he would make was a moment's pause to light his lamps. When it grew dark there seemed to be some excitement amongst the passengers, and they kept speaking to him, one after the other, as though urging him to further speed. He lashed the horses unmercifully with his long whip, and with wild cries of encouragement urged them on to further exertions. Then, through the darkness, I could see a sort of patch of grey light ahead of us, as though there were a cleft in the hills. The excitement of the passengers grew greater. The crazy coach rocked on its great leather springs, and swayed like a boat tossed on a stormy sea. I had to hold on. The road grew more level and we appeared to fly along. Then the mountains seemed to come nearer to us on each side and to frown down upon us. We were entering the Borgo Pass. One by one several of the passengers offered me gifts, which they pressed upon me with an earnestness which would take no denial. These were certainly of an odd and varied kind, but each was given in simple good faith. 
with a kindly word and a blessing, and that strange mixture of fear-meaning movements which I had seen outside the hotel at B Streets, the sign of the cross and the guard against the evil eye. Then, as we flew along, the driver leaned forward, and on each side the passengers, craning over the edge of the coach, peered eagerly into the darkness. It was evident that something very exciting was either happening or expected, but though I asked each passenger, no one would give me the slightest explanation. This state of excitement kept on for some little time, and at last we saw before us the pass opening out on the eastern side. There were dark, rolling clouds overhead, and in the air the heavy, oppressive sense of thunder. It seemed as though the mountain range had separated two atmospheres, and that now we had got into the thunderous one. I was now myself looking out for the conveyance which was to take me to the Count. Each moment I expected to see the glare of lamps through the blackness, but all was dark, The only light was the flickering rays of our own lamps, in which steam from our hard-driven horses rose in a white cloud. We could now see the sandy road lying white before us, but there was on it no sign of a vehicle. The passengers drew back with a sigh of gladness, which seemed to mock my own disappointment. I was already thinking what I had best do, when the driver, looking at his watch, said to the others something which I could hardly hear. It was spoken so quietly and in so low a tone. I thought it was... An hour less than the time. Then, turning to me, he said in German, worse than my own, The Herr is not expected after all. He will now come on to Bukovina and return tomorrow or the next day. Better the next day. Whilst he was speaking, the horses began to neigh and snort and plunge wildly so that the driver had to hold them up. Then, amongst a chorus of screams from the peasants and a universal crossing of themselves, a kalesh with four horses drove up behind us overtook us and drew up beside the coach. I could see from the flash of our lamps as the rays fell upon them that the horses were coal-black and splendid animals. They were driven by a tall man with a long brown beard and a great black hat, which seemed to hide his face from us. I could only see the gleam of a pair of very bright eyes, which seemed red in the lamplight, as he turned to us. He said to the driver, "'You are early tonight, my friend.' The man stammered in reply, "'The English hare was in a hurry,' to which the stranger replied. "'That is why, I suppose, you wished him to go on to Bukovina. "'You cannot deceive me, my friend. I know too much, and my horses are swift.' "'As he spoke, he smiled, and the lamplight fell upon a hard-looking mouth, "'with very red lips and sharp-looking teeth, as white as ivory. "'One of my companions whispered to the other the line from Burz's Lenore. "'Den die toten reiten schnell.' for the dead travel fast. The strange driver evidently heard the words, for he looked up with a gleaming smile. The passenger turned his face away, at the same time pulling out his two fingers and crossing himself. Give me the hare's luggage, said the driver, and with exceeding alacrity my bags were handed out and put in the calèche. Then I descended from the side of the coach as the calèche was close alongside, the driver helping me with a hand which caught my arm in a grip of steel. His strength must have been prodigious. Without a word he shook his reins, the horses turned, and we swept into the darkness of the pass. As I looked back I saw the steam from the horses of the coach by the light of the lamps, and projected against it the figures of my late companions crossing themselves. Then the driver cracked his whip and called to his horses, and off they swept on their way to Bukovina. As they sank into the darkness I felt a strange chill, and a lonely feeling came over me. But a cloak was thrown over my shoulders, and a rug across my knees, and the driver said in excellent German, "'The night is chill, mein Herr.' and my master the Count bade me to take all care of you. There is a flask of Slivovitz, 
the plum brandy of the country, under the seat, if you should require it. I did not take any, but it was a comfort to know it was there all the same. I felt a little strangely, and not a little frightened. I think had there been any alternative, I should have taken it, instead of prosecuting that unknown night journey. The carriage went at a hard pace straight along, and then we made a complete turn and went along another straight road. It seemed to me that we were simply going over and over the same ground again, and so I took note of some salient point and found that this was so. I would have liked to have asked the driver what this all meant, but I really feared to do so, for I thought that, placed as I was, any protest would have had no effect in case there had been an intention to delay. By and by, however, as I was curious to know how time was passing, I struck a match, and by its flame looked at my watch. It was within a few minutes of midnight. This gave me a sort of shock, for I suppose the general superstition around midnight was increased by my recent experiences. I waited with a sick feeling of suspense. Then a dog began to howl somewhere in a farmhouse far down the road, a long, agonised wailing, as if from fear. The sound was taken up by another dog, and then another and another, till, borne on the wind, which now sighed softly through the pass, a wild howling began which seemed to come from all over the country, as far as the imagination could grasp it through the gloom of the night. At the first howl the horses began to strain and rear, but the driver spoke to them soothingly and they quieted down, but shivered and sweated as though after a runaway from sudden fright. Then, far off in the distance, from the mountains on each side of us began a louder and sharper howling, that of wolves which affected both the horses and myself in the same way, for I was minded to jump from the calash and run, whilst they reared again and plunged madly, so that the driver had to use all his great strength to keep them from bolting. In a few minutes, however, my own ears got accustomed to the sound, and the horses so far became quiet that the driver was able to descend and to stand before them. He petted and soothed them and whispered something in their ears, as I have heard of horse tamers doing, and with extraordinary effect, for under his caresses they became quite manageable again, though they still trembled. The driver again took his seat, and shaking the reins, started off at a great pace. This time, after going to the far side of the pass, he suddenly turned down a narrow roadway which ran sharply to the right. Soon we were hemmed in with trees, which in places arched right over the roadway till we passed us through a tunnel, and again great frowning rocks guarded us boldly on either side. Though we were in shelter, we could hear the rising wind, for it moaned and whistled through the rocks, and the branches of the trees crashed together as we swept along. It grew colder and colder still, and fine powdery snow began to fall, so that soon we and all around us were covered with a white blanket. The keen wind still carried the howling of the dogs, though this grew fainter as we went on our way. The baying of the wolves sounded nearer and nearer as though they were closing round on us from every side. I grew dreadfully afraid, and the horses shared my fear, but the driver was not in the least disturbed. He kept turning his head to left and right, but I could not see anything through the darkness. Suddenly, Away on our left I saw a faint flickering blue flame. The driver saw it at the same moment. He at once checked the horses and, jumping to the ground, disappeared into the darkness. I did not know what to do, the less as the howling of the wolves grew closer. But while I wondered, the driver suddenly appeared again, and without a word took his seat, and we resumed our journey. I think I must have fallen asleep and kept dreaming of the incident, for it seemed to be repeated endlessly, and now, looking back, it is like a sort of awful nightmare. Once the flame appeared so near the road that even in the darkness around us I could watch the driver's motions, he went rapidly to where the blue flame arose. It must have been very faint, for it did not seem to illuminate the place around it at all, and, gathering a few stones, formed them into some device. Once there appeared a strange optical effect. When he stood between me and the flame, he did not obstruct it, for I could see its ghostly flicker all the same. 
This startled me, but as the effect was only momentary, I took it that my eyes deceived me straining through the darkness. Then, for a time, there were no blue flames, and we sped onwards through the gloom, with the howling of the wolves around us as though they were following in a moving circle. At last there came a time when the driver went further afield than he had yet gone, and during his absence the horses began to tremble worse than ever and to snort and scream with fright. I could not see any cause for it, for the howling of the wolves had ceased altogether, but just then the moon, sailing through the black clouds, appeared behind the jagged crest of a beetling pine-clad rock, and by its light I saw around us a ring of wolves, with white teeth and lolling red tongues, with long, sinewy limbs and shaggy hair. They were a hundred times more terrible in the grim silence which held them than even when they howled. For myself, I felt a sort of paralysis of fear. It is only when a man feels himself face to face with such horrors that he can understand their true import. All at once the wolves began to howl as though the moonlight had had some peculiar effect on them. The horses jumped about and reared and looked helplessly round with eyes that rolled in a way painful to see, but the living ring of terror encompassed them on every side, and they had perforce to remain within it. I called to the coachman to come, for it seemed to me that our only chance was to try and break out through the ring and to aid his approach. I shouted and beat the side of the calèche, hoping by the noise to scare the wolves from that side, so as to give him a chance of reaching the trap. How he came there I know not, but I heard his voice raised in a tone of imperious command, and, looking towards the sound, saw him stand in the roadway. As he swept his long arms, as though brushing aside some impalpable obstacle, the wolves fell back and back further still. Just then a heavy cloud passed across the face of the moon so that we were again in darkness. When I could see again, the driver was climbing into the calèche and the wolves had disappeared. This was all so strange and uncanny that a dreadful fear came upon me and I was afraid to speak or move. The time seemed interminable as we swept on our way. Now in almost complete darkness for the rolling clouds obscured the moon, we kept on ascending with occasional periods of quick descent, but in the main always ascending. Suddenly I became conscious of the fact that the driver was in the act of pulling up the horses in the courtyard of a vast ruined castle, from whose tall black windows came no ray of light, and whose broken battlements showed a jagged line against the moonlit sky. End of chapter 1 Jonathan Harker was read by John Scholes. John Scholes is a freelance writer, actor, director, and all-round evil person and has never been arrested for molesting chickens. You can find further insanity from John Scholes at www.vaguenet.com. Thank you. I hope you have enjoyed our first chapter of Dracula. I absolutely feel at this point like my voice is accompanying Dracula beautifully now that I sound all husky and mysterious. Wasn't John a wonderful reader? Oh, I'm so excited. And we have to send our thanks to Ms. Adams on Ravelry, also known as Sharon, who a bunch of us met on the trip to London Bath and Wales. She of the colorful hair and clothing and everything. She's the one who hooked me up with John, and boy, did she come out of nowhere and save our butts. Um, and, and John has just done yeoman service. If you go and read his blog, you'll see he's been going through quite a rough time, but really pulled out all the stops for us, and we will get to hear more of him as the book progresses. So Jonathan Harker, you don't know yet, but you will know soon a lot more about Jonathan and his home life. And next week, you will meet 
Dracula. And isn't it fun to get to hear everybody's accents? <laughs> we all do Dracula so similarly. I love it. All right, don't forget, if you donate to Craftlet during the month of September or October 2001, you get put into a drawing for one of Marcelli Botticelli's gorgeous vintage china tea stands. Also, our first knit-along starts this weekend, September 24th, for the Wilhelmina Chalette. Chrissy Gardner of Gardner Yarn Works will be hosting that, followed hard on by Meg Warren, who will be hosting the Van Tassel Mitten knit-along. And both of those will be held at the group on Ravelry for What Would Madame Defarge Knit? That's WWMDFK. That's the name of the group at Ravelry. Also, you'll find links in the show notes to my husband's first novel ever released, Cool for Cats. It is not a book for children, just letting you know. Also, you'll find links to Knitting Socks from Around the World, which has my socks on its cover. I'm so excited about that. And of course, links to What Would Madame Defarge Knit on sale now pretty much everywhere online. And we're getting into more and more local yarn stores. If you go in and ask for it, they will get it. Same with places like Barnes & Noble. If you go and ask for it, they can get it for you. All right, I'm off to drink a lot of tea and do a little more research, pay some bills, drink a little more tea, <laughs> stuff like that. I hope you have a great week. I will talk to you very soon, and I will bring back more of Dracula. Please remember to support the people who support Craftlit. Visit Knit Circus online magazine, offering three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can check out the latest issue at www.knitcircus.com. And what would Madame Defarge knit? A new book of knit and crochet patterns coming to you from the Craftlit family. And please visit the blogs and sites of Craftlit supporters. Those links can be found in the sidebar of the show notes. The show notes can be found at craftlit.com. Craftlit can also be accessed by its own Android and iPhone application. You can purchase it at the iPhone or iTouch application store, or you can subscribe free at iTunes. Craftlit is made possible by the generous support of its listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. Remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one.